Welcome to another episode of Frame Lab, the podcast on politics, language, and your brain. I'm Gil Duran, here with Professor George Lakoff. Hi, George. Hi, Gil. How are you doing today? I am happy and healthy. Great. Well, George, in our first episode, we talked about what makes a conservative a conservative. We talked about the conservative moral hierarchy. And so I think it's time for us to talk with people about what makes a Democrat a Democrat or a progressive a progressive. One of our listeners recently said on Twitter, but after listening to episode one, she felt sort of lonely because she was under the impression that what we meant was that this is how all Americans think. But really, the strict father part of the metaphor is only half of the metaphor. And the other half of the metaphor is very different from that. There's a very different family metaphor and potentially a lot more powerful one. Can you tell us a little bit about what the other half of the family metaphor is in American politics? Well, a progressive family is one that could be called um, uh, responsible and caring. It ha if there are two parents, they are both responsible for their children, uh, and they have to be able to empathize with their child to know what their child mean needs. Uh, if they don't know what their child needs, they're not going to be able to do to be able to help. Uh, as an infant, uh, the child will cry, and you have to know what all those cries mean. Uh, as the child grows up, you have to have two-way open communication, so the child will tell you, honestly, what's going on. So that's part of it. Part of it is that you can't have to take care of yourself if you're going to take care of a kid. Uh, you can't just be totally self-sacrificing and not do anything for yourself. You have to really uh, take care of yourself and your child and your children. And then, and in particular, you have to be able to responsibly tell them what not to do. Uh, you know, you don't run into the street, you don't put your hand in the stove, and so on, and you tell them why. And that's the other thing. They should be able to ask why and get answers to why. And, uh, and then you really want them to be able to be fulfilled in their life. So they need to have education, they need to be healthy, they need to have lots of experiences, uh, they need to be able to uh, go out and, and learn about all sorts of things to see what they most want to do in life and to be able to be trained to do it. That's what a progressive parent is like, and you take that and apply it to politics, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Lincoln said it well, in a democracy you have government that is of, by, and for the people. In a family, uh, you have your, the family members are part of the same family. It's by the family and for the family, in particular for the, the, the uh, children in the family. This doesn't mean that uh, we think of uh, uh, citizens as children, quite the opposite. We think as citizens as family members that we, can, that we care about uh, and people that we care about. And this came out very clearly, very recently, uh, in the issue of uh, shutting down the government. For example, uh, the, there was a reason for the things, the list of things that the Democrats wanted, but they never stated the ge general reason. Democrats as a whole have uh, a moral message, and the moral message is very simple, that the Democratic Party seeks to promote the freedom and well-being of all. And special cases of that would be freedom for DACA recipients, uh, freedom uh, for uh, uh, people who are sick and need to be well, because if you're sick, you're not free if you don't have health care. So the CHIP program was part of that, 9 million children who need health care desperately. And the opioid epidemic, people dying all over the country. These are things that they asked for, but they asked for them one at a time rather than as a general principle, pointing out that it's the Democrats who really are interested in people being free and, and having well-being, and the Republicans in these cases are not. So they're not tying it back to those bigger, broader ideas that are really at the heart 
of the entire American project. And instead, what you see is a focus on issues and bills and policies, or as we saw unfolding on social media this week during the debate over whether there would be a shutdown, it's almost a focus on who will get the blame in a tactical sense. Will it be a Trump shutdown or a Schumer shutdown, for instance, rather than Will we be extending the freedom and protection of American citizens in a way that recognizes the whole purpose of our nation? Or will we be turning our backs on that and turning our backs on care and turning our backs on our on children and our fellow citizens who are suffering? Right. And I think the important thing is to say there's a general principle here about what this country is about. Uh, they happen to, to show up in three kinds of legislation right now. But they show up in every possible kind of legislation. Uh, All the legislation you find from the Republicans go against these principles. All the the legislation you find from the Democrats go for these principles. But you need to know that to show that this is a matter of principle. And let's talk about some of those principles. In the conservative moral hierarchy, there's a pretty clear hierarchy of, you know, for instance, whites above non-whites adults above children, men above women. But, and I've seen some people on social media ask you, what is the progressive moral hierarchy? And I don't think it's so much of a hierarchy as it is a set of principles and ideas. And you lay these out in your book, The All New Think of an Elephant. Don't Uh, think of an elephant. Don't think of an elephant. Yeah. Oh, wait, see, now I'm thinking of an elephant. You got me thinking about an elephant. The all new Don't Think of an Elephant, which is a revision of the book you originally wrote in 2004 called Don't Think of an Elephant. Um, and in there, here's some of the ideas. And I want to list some of the ideas and just get you to explain a little bit about um, when I say the word, how that expresses the progressive philosophy and, and why it matters. So the first word on that list is empathy. Empathy is at the heart of progressive politics. It means that citizens care about other citizens and work through the government to provide public resources for everybody, uh, both uh, for private life and for private enterprise. You can't run a business without all the things provided by the government, starting with uh, roads and and bridges and airports uh, and going through uh, all the technical things that they supported, from computer science to uh, satellite communications. Uh, You can't run businesses without all of those things and many more. And that is really important. Uh, You need to know that uh, whether you're in business or in private life, you depend upon public resources uh, all the time, and usually they're hidden. Uh, There used to be uh, little signs around saying, your tax money at work. And it might be a good idea to have them back again because they're at work all the time. What you're doing when you pay taxes is providing for all sorts of things that, that are not seen but are absolutely necessary, whether it has to do with public education or public health and disease control uh, you know, or the training of uh, air, airline pilots through the Air Force, all sorts of things that you, you could not have without the government providing these, and it's not the government that provides it. It's the citizens, the public, working through the government. What does that have to do with empathy, though? It has to do with empathy is that the reason you do it is you do it because it's not just about you. It's about you caring about other citizens in general. You know, uh, my children, my child has been educated already, but I care about education for everybody else's children. Because education matters for all children and not only for all children, but for society in general. And for me, it's important to live in a place where there are educated citizens and where children and others are educated to have the opportunity to do well in life. Next word on the list, freedom. Freedom is central, and most people don't even see all the forms of freedom that you have. If you don't have health care and you break your leg or you get cancer, you are not free. If you don't have an education, you are not free to pursue just the the things that that an education would allow you to do. Uh, In general, freedom is there all the time in all kinds of ways, not just freedom of motion to go to other places, which is necessary, uh, but the freedom to uh, choose what you want to do in life, the freedom to choose 
who you wanted to be with, and also the freedom to uh, express yourself freely and to have a free press, which is absolutely central in all of American life. The freedom to actually say the truth, to say what you believe, to get it out there, is central. Prosperity. Prosperity matters. If you are in dire poverty, you cannot live a, a life that is full. You can't get your health care most of the time unless you uh, happen to uh, get the Affordable Health Care Act uh, allowing you to get health care. In general, uh, all sorts of things are closed off for you in, in, if you're really in dire poverty, uh, you know, starting at a very young age. Uh, if you, uh, you know, can't afford a car, you can't just go driving around. If you can't afford uh, a, re a place to live, you're homeless. Uh, this is a terrible thing, and there are so many people who are in dire poverty who are homeless, and as citizens in this country, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, it is abominable that anybody, any citizen here, you know, should have to live in dire poverty. You know, this is, uh, you know, actually a sin, if you want to use the word sin. So prosperity is about having a prosperous society, not just you getting as rich as you can get. Exactly. Prosperity is exactly that. It's living in a society where everybody ha is reasonably well off and well off enough so that they don't have to live in the streets, so they don't have to go hungry, so they can function uh, productively in society. You want to live in a society where everybody, you know, can be productive and be healthy and be well enough off to at least have a place to live. Fairness. Fairness comes in many forms, and there are many definitions of fairness. Uh, there's a book I wrote called Moral Politics, which goes over ten definitions of fairness. And for fairness basically has, uh, in political terms, has to do with being treated fairly. And what does fairly mean from the, pr from the perspective of pro uh, progressive politics? It means that uh, you are not... Uh, subject to uh, the unfairness of, of wealth imbalance. Now, wealth imbalance is not just about, uh, you know, the 1% having, you know, uh, more money than, you know, the lower 50% or something like that. That's wealth imbalance. But wealth gives power. Wealth imbalance is power imbalance. You know, when you have wealth, you can uh, not just buy things for yourself and get the nice places to live and the good schools to go to, but more than that, you can influence people. You can um, give money to political leaders and try to get access in that way. Uh, you can uh, buy um, media and get the paid media to say what, what you want said. Uh, basically, uh, wealth imbalance is power imbalance, and there are many forms of power imbalance throughout our society. Uh, this is not fair. Fairness has to do with the ability to have equal power as equal, as equal citizens. And that's very important. In this country of where you have equality, the equality of influence on political matters is crucial. We don't have that now but it's crucial that we get as close to it as we possibly can. Community. You don't live by yourself. You're part of a community. And you can't do things on your own. Everybody has to function with others in a community of some sort. And there are many forms of communities. Some communities are corporations and businesses where you work. Some communities are uh, communities of musicians communities of artists, communities of writers, but also communities of people who just care about other people. There are communities of people who volunteer to do all sorts of things. And in doing so, they help the city they live in, the neighborhoods they live in. You know, in order to get things to be the, the way they are in neighborhoods, you need to have community activists to get the streets uh, fixed up, to get good lighting on the streets, uh, to make sure that the police are active there, uh, to, to uh, make sure that there are zoning regulations that are for people, uh, not just for uh, developers. 
I mean, these are very, very important things in your community, and they affect your daily life and more than you really realize. Service. Service follows from all of this. Service is a matter of saying, I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen of this community, this neighborhood, this country, and I get a lot from it. I get all those public resources that all those citizens, those other citizens, have put in to our government, have invested in all the things that I got from it. If you got a public education, you didn't uh, you know, train those people and build the schools yourself. They were given to you. Uh, if you uh, are protected from disease, from the Center for Disease Control and other public uh, uh, health uh, organizations, you didn't do it yourself. You needed other people in doing service. And in fairness to everyone else, as being a citizen, you have a dedication to do service for your country, for your neighborhood, for your city, for wherever you are, for your communities. Cooperation. To do all those things, you have to cooperate with other people. You can't serve uh, your country uh, and your community without cooperating with all those other people uh, that you're working with. Trust and honesty. Everything. Almost everything depends on trust. Yes, you have to have contracts for some things uh, monetarily and so on. That is necessary. But most of the time, you work on trust. Uh, when <laughs> A good example was the book Don't Think of an Elephant, which was written on trust. It was written without a contract. Uh, when we wrote it, I wrote it and we published it, and we figured out later what the fairest contract would be and did it. It was written because we had ideas to get out there as quickly as possible. And we did it quickly as possible, not as a matter of making as much money as possible, but as getting it out there and trusting each other to do this. That's an extreme case of trust. But there are many others. In your everyday life, uh, if, someone, if you see someone and you ask, uh, uh, you know, uh, how do I get to the subway? You trust that they give you an answer that's true. I mean, that's very simple, but that's true all the time. Anytime you depend on anyone else for the smallest thing, uh, like you're in the grocery store and you want to know where are the mushrooms, you know, hopefully if someone knows, they'll tell you where they are and you trust them to know. Or you get on a plane and there's a pilot who's going to fly you. You trust that he knows what he's doing and is licensed and you'll be safe. Exactly. And you get in the car and you assume it's not going to fall apart. I mean, all of this has to do with trust all the time. You know, uh, you, know you, walk, you, you buy clothes and you assume that they're not going to fall apart in two days. You know, you trust that the manufacturers are reasonably uh, monitored enough and, and trustworthy enough to want to, to make the clothes well or to make your shoes well. I mean, this is constant. If you look at around you, at everything you do in, in, in daily life and say, who did I have to trust to, to be able to function with this object, with this, these things? And who do I have to trust as I talk every day going around town? You know, do I have to trust the people who are driving, the people who I trust not to drive into me, not to run over me as I'm crossing the street? This is crucial. But it's easier to have trust when we have our next word, protection. Crucial, to be sure. You need protection from people who are more powerful than you and who are unscrupulous. And that is unfortunately the case. There are a lot of people, uh, and especially corporations, who um, do things that are not for your benefit, but for their wealth. They have to do with pollution, pollution of all kinds. They have to do with putting chemicals into uh, household goods that could cause cancer, chemicals into pharmaceuticals that are unhealthy or cancerous, uh, chemicals into all sorts of things. Chemicals are there a lot in, uh, in uh, cases like this. But also, um, there are people who uh, 
uh, simply want to make money off of you, who want to sell you things that won't work, uh, and you need protection from them, and especially in the environment. You know, we face the greatest moral crisis in the history of the planet right now, which is uh, the basically destruction of the natural world through global warming and through uh, man-made uh, you know, global warming. And this will uh, create not just climate change, but climate disasters everywhere. We already see those disasters happening. And uh, we can't just sit there and say, oh, let the disasters happen. Uh, oh, weather just changes, uh, you know, uh, it's going to, it's, sure, it's natural to have snowstorms in Georgia. No, it's not natural to have snowstorms in Georgia. That happens because of the fact that things warm over the Pacific Ocean. Water molecules go into the air. Huge numbers of them evaporate, high energy. They get blown over the North Pole. The winds take them back down over the East Coast, and the snow that is formed over the North Pole from all that moisture comes down in Georgia. That is global warming. What do you do about it? You have to stop drilling for gas and oil. And so then you need society to protect you from these things. You need protections to make sure we can all trust everyone because otherwise you have oil companies saying, hey, I'm going to make as much money as I want to make. It doesn't matter what happens to other people. All that matters is me maximizing my profit, which is the uh, moral system that works for a different group of people here, the, the, the conservative moral hierarchy. Well, in the conservative moral hierarchy, uh, you know, the rich are above the poor, the corporations are above other people. And we've said this before, but this is what has uh, led to the idea of getting rid of what corporations call regulations that cost them money. But regulations are all protections. They're all there to protect the public. So uh, when uh, the GOP has said and the president has said, we want to get rid of 75% of the regulations in government, what they really mean is we want to get rid of 75% of the public protections and the environmental protections. And that is what's happening right now. But you rarely see that reflected in the media or even in communications from Democrats. And I think this is one of the most accessible issues where you can see the power of framing is when people like the New York Times talk about how we're getting rid of all these regulations and businesses are happy. You've said this before. They're not saying the other and more important part of the equation. That's entirely true. When progressives and liberal organizations like the, you know, the New York Times in terms of most of its policies uh, uh, simply take the other side's terms. They take the term regulation as used by businessmen and they assign a, a reporter to go and ask business people what they think about the getting rid of regulations, not thinking about protections, not thinking about what they mean to ordinary people and to the environment. And this is something that we need to, to guard against. Uh, you know, when George W. Bush came into office, he first talked about tax relief, as if taxation were an affliction that needed to be relieved. And uh, if you didn't want to relieve it from, uh, from that, you were a bad guy. And if you wanted to get rid of taxes, you were a hero because you were relieve, relieving them. It soon became the case that the Democrats were talking about tax relief, that the New York Times on its front page talked about tax relief, and then you get tax relief from the middle class, which uh, is taking exactly the Republican view about taxes. There was a big story in the Washington Post uh, today about this very issue, about the language wars around the immigration issue. So it was interesting to see a mainstream paper actually take a look at the fact that language does matter which language matters and the language that you use is tying into different political frames, which is why conservatives and progressives are usually fighting over what that language is. I'd say the conservatives are fighting a little harder than the progressives are. And the reason we were going over the ideas in the first episode of the conservative moral hierarchy and now talking about what makes a progressive a progressive, really the politics of care these are important to look at because in order to understand the frame you're trying to create, you have to understand what that frame is. And so the story today in the Washington Post illustrates how the term illegal immigration 
triggers the exact frame that the conservatives want to use, whereas Democrats try to come back to that with undocumented immigrant or maybe new American, future American dreamers is another frame that's been uh, imposed on the debate and that's become popular. So it's not just about words. It's about the ideas that those words connect to. And in many cities across the nation yesterday, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of Americans, took to the streets in the second Women's March. And last year, George, when we had the Women's March, you wrote an essay, a very popular essay on the politics of care. And I think in a way, politics of care is what encompasses this progressive frame, this progressive moral worldview. Would you agree with that? Or is there more different to say on that? Oh, that's absolutely right. Uh, When the Women's March occurred last year, one of the criticisms came out that the speakers, uh, if you had, uh, they would have clips on the news re- newscasts of individual speakers. Each of them was talking about a different women's issue. And there are lots of women's issues, and each of them picked a different one. And they said, well, there's no unity here. It's all over the place. Uh, we don't, the march isn't about anything at all. And that was wrong. The march was about one thing, care. All of the issues whether they're men's issues, women's issues, or just people issues, and most of the women's issues are just people issues, uh, these are issues that have to do with one thing, the politics of care, the politics of empathy, uh, the idea that politics is about uh, government of, by, and for the people, for the people, care. And this is something that uh, is not said often enough, and needs to be said all the time. Anytime you're proposing something that is caring about uh, some, some, some group of people, like the children's health care bill, nine million children who can't get health care, who are impoverished, depend upon that. That is not just about children. It's about care. It's about the very idea of what government should be. Recently on... Facebook and on Twitter, you asked a question of people. This was actually a couple months ago. Why are you a Democrat was the question. And you asked people to explain in their own words why they were members of the Democratic Party or they were progressives. And almost every answer came back to these words these that you've listed, these ideas of what it is that makes a progressive, the politics of care. It's about empathy. It's about freedom for everyone. It's about service. It's about cooperation. But there is some separation in the progressive democratic side of the movement. And in in Don't Think of an Elephant, you identified some different types of progressives, socioeconomic progressives, identity politics progressives, environmentalists, civil liberties progressives, spiritual progressives, and anti-authoritarians. You want to say a little bit about those different groups of progressives? Sure. All of them have something in common which is exactly what we're talking about. They start with empathy. They start with care. They have to do with the idea of a government of, by, and for the people, of a government that produces public resources for everybody because citizens demand that they have public resources for everybody, whether it's socioeconomic, where they have economic resources and opportunities, Uh, identity politics, where particular groups uh, are oppressed in many ways, Uh, whether they're environmentalists who see that the environment is crucial, that we need to support it, and so on down the line. Each of these things is a special case of a very general case of what it means to be a progressive or a Democrat uh, in general, but they don't know it. They unconsciously, instinctively have it, and then they pick one part of it they care, that, that they care about for them. That's their issue. And then they make it as if uh, the party was just about their issues. Missing the whole, missing that, and what that does is fragment the party and fragment the very idea that they most care about, which is care. They, they miss that, and they allow the Republicans to win in all kinds of ways on issue, not only on issue after issue, but on what the country is about. You know, they allow them to, to have this hierarchical, the moral hierarchy of 
conservatism uh, as the basis of legislation because they won't look at the general case. So an inability to unite, to see divisions as bigger than what unites us has been an issue. And we saw that a lot in 2016 with the tension between the Bernie and the Hillary camps. On both sides, people were completely um, only seeing the values of their candidate and really, for the most part, uh, discounting the attributes of the other candidate. I remember after Hillary got the nomination, um, I, who had voted for Bernie in the primary, uh, made the silly suggestion on Facebook to my friends that maybe Bernie should be the vice president and Hillary should be the president. And I was attacked from both sides. The Bernie people said Bernie would never lower himself to do that. And the Hillary people were like, no, Bernie for anything. And looking back now, after a year of Trump, I'd have to say that probably people would have a different attitude toward having Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the White House right now instead of Donald Trump. So maybe this illustrates why we need to be a little more united and see our common values and focus on those values instead of finding ways to create differences between ourselves. Exactly right. Uh, I agree 100%. At the same time, conservatives weren't always so good at being so united. And you write in Don't Think of an Elephant about the 50s and the 60s and the time when conservatives were just as divided as some groups of progressives are today. Sure. There were the uh, religious conservatives were there then and people who uh, were uh, financial conservatives, the uh, Wall Street conservatives, uh, didn't get along with the religious conservatives. Uh, there were uh, purely social conservatives who didn't have anything to do with religion who wanted the separation of uh, church and state but who had social conservative views. They didn't get along with the religious ones or with the Wall Street ones, and so on. Uh, and it took a lot of effort for people uh, in, on the Republican side to get together. Uh, Bill Buckley played a major role in bringing people together uh, to be con uh, have a general conservative movement. Uh, Reagan had a major uh, effect in this. And even some people on the religious uh, sides uh, you know, understood that it wasn't just religion that was at issue, it was everything that was at issue. Uh, uh, someone like James Dobson, for example, wrote about every kind of issue as being an issue uh, of conservatism in general uh, and, uh, and of, of child raising. He understood the strict father morality, and he said that's how you should raise your children because that's how they will grow up to be good conservatives on every issue. And this uh, is something that they worked at. The uh, Powell Memo, uh, which came out uh, at the height of the Vietnam War, uh, before uh, Powell went on the Supreme Court, appointed by Nixon, uh, suggested that uh, because of the Vietnam War and the rebellion of college students against the war, uh, the uh, conservative businessmen were not getting the brightest uh, of the youngest young people in college. And the Powell Memo said, we got to do something about this if we want to preserve conservative business. Uh, he suggested starting the think tanks. That is, putting, getting rich conservatives to put their wealth uh, where their ideology is and to form uh, intellectual organizations, hire the best scholars they can, pay uh, for publishing, for bu buying media, uh, that's why you have Clear Channel all over the country and Sinclair all over the country uh, buying up radio stations uh, to get the conservative message out there. Uh, that's why the Leadership Institute was formed to train conservatives. They've trained 100, in the first 20 years, they trained 160,000 people all over the country to be conservative leaders and to think and talk conservative. Explain that a little more because I think a lot of people probably listening have never heard of the Leadership Institute. The Leadership Institute started around 1994 when the, uh, the um, uh, conservatives took over Congress. Uh, and um, uh, a lot of wealthy people put money into the Leadership Institute in Arlington, Virginia. And they set up cheap trainings because the money was there. So for a small amount of money or for free, you could come to the Leadership Institute or go online and get online training or go to some local center where they were training all over the country, 
and they trained people who wanted to be conservative leaders down to the age of 15 in summer camps to think and talk conservative. And they have a listserv of all the people they've trained. They get uh, talking points out to them every day. And they announced uh, and they booked them on radio and TV. As if you want to talk about an issue today with those talking points, they will book you on a local TV station or in some local venue. Now, that is a very powerful thing. And they announced after 20 years in 2014 that they had trained 159,000 conservative leaders all over the country and in 15 other countries where conservatives have been taking over the governments like Hungary and Poland and so on. That is, they are working around the world, not just here, and they're very effective here. So when you think about conservative uh, uh, propaganda getting out, uh, it's not just, uh, you know, know, the TV news. It's these 160,000 people out there all the time, talking every day. And more and more. And, and so progressives haven't done anything, Democrats haven't done anything like this. Is that true? They have done nothing like this. This has not been unknown. Uh, I was at one of the early meetings of this, of Democratic leaders and donors in 2002, where this was all described, and nobody did a thing. I've been trying to get them to do that, and now uh, you and I are beginning to do something with our Citizens Communication Network, which this podcast will be going out to. So the idea is that we need an equivalent. Well, first of all, we're way behind the game here, and we need an equivalent structure and organization and ability to train progressives, to train Democrats, and to understand some of these basic um, mechanics that are being missed right now in the current debate. What the conservatives did was smart. I mean, what they did was have a means to get their beliefs and their language out there, to frame first, to get their frames into people's brains. It's, you know, they do it through language, but the language is secondary. What the language does is activate ideas in people's brains, and people act on those ideas, because if they're in their brains and dominant, if they're repeated off enough and become dominant in their brains, then they're going to be acting on those ideas. And that's an important point, I think, because, again, in the past uh, week or two, you've really been out there on television, you've been on, on Twitter and Facebook, in newspapers, and one of the forms of pushback we always see from Democrats and and progressives is a real uh, desire to not see Trump as intelligent in any way. A lot of people really want to believe that Trump's an idiot, that he's dumb. It's almost a very emotional need to see him as dumb and idiotic. And that's understandable because it's a scary time and he's a, he's a despicable man. At the same time, even if you want to see Trump as just dumb and idiotic, the reason he's been able to be so successful at getting all the way to the White House is partially because the conservatives have spent so much time and so much money building the tracks on which even a clown like Trump can roll and achieve all of their aims as a blunt instrument and a tool of their purpose. Right. This started way back in 1967 with the Nixon campaign, uh, where uh, they had to figure out how to get uh, working people to vote for Nixon after Goldwater had lost in 64, and they figured out that uh, they could uh, call college students uh, demonstrating against the Vietnam War communist and run as anti-communist because lots of working people had been in the military. Uh, They figured out they could uh, uh, run on traditional family values because the women's movement had made a lot of uh, progress, starting with Betty Friedan in 63, and by 67 it was out there and scaring a lot of working men. And also because the Civil Rights Act had gotten uh, a lot of uh, either bigots in, uh, or, uh, or people who were just scared of their jobs, who were working men, uh, to vote Republican, and vote for Nixon. And that created conservative populism, and that conservative populism has developed right now into Trumpism. And the other big part of that that we'll talk about in a different episode is that it's not just about the progressives and the conservatives, but also about the biconceptuals, the people who have both ideas in their brain. And that tends to be who we're always fighting over because they provide 
the votes you need to have the majority in America. That's right. You need, you know, there are a lot of people who are mostly progressive but have some conservative views, say, about business or other social issues, but they vary from person to person. There are lots of conservatives who have progressive views. You have Lindsey Graham out there pushing for DACA, for example, today, uh, and who are progressive on certain issues. The question is, how do you talk to such folks? The big mistake has been to say, if you're talking to someone who is conservative and only partial progressive, uh, then they're in the center and you should move to the center. But moving to the center really means adopting right-wing views and right-wing language. That just helps the right wing. What you need to do is speak your values because you're speaking to the values that other people have, at least on some issues. And it's important that you strengthen those values on those issues. This has come up when I taught. Um, when I used to teach uh, on politics and language, my students would say, uh, hey, uh, Christmas is coming up, Thanksgiving is coming up, uh, we're going to have fights, and I, I hate the idea because I have to have a big fight with my grandfather or my aunt, uh, who's a conservative. And I always tell them, don't fight with them at all. Ask them one question. The question is, what are you most proud of that you've done for other people? Because that raises the issue of empathy and in-group care. We've talked about that before. Conservatives actually care about people in their in-group, in their community, in their church, and so on. And you want to be able to, to extend that notion of care more broadly to other people. Get them thinking about care and empathy because that will spread. So, George, to end on a positive note, at the end of the chapter called Framing 101 in Don't Think of an Elephant, you leave progressives with 11 points to consider going forward. And so I'm going to read off those points, and if you can just give us a quick um, update or analysis or admonishment um, for the road here. Uh, we'll do that one sec. So first, recognize what conservatives have done right and where progressives have missed the boat. Conservatives have, done, have figured out how to frame things their way and how to, to set up a communication system that gets their frames out there because they're their beliefs. This is not a bad thing to do. A lot of progressives say, oh, the, we don't want to be like the conservatives and do that. But actually, setting up a communication system and understanding what you really believe why you believe it, why you think it's right, and what the facts are, and why those facts matter, why they're important because of their morality, that's something you have to do. Second, remember, don't think of an elephant. Right. When you hear someone say something outrageous, don't just repeat it and try to give an argument against it in their terms. Why? Because don't think of an elephant says... You're going to start thinking of an elephant. You'll start thinking of their way, and you'll just reinforce it in other people's brains. When you, when you use other people's language, use your opponent's language, even to argue against them, that is activating it in, their, in the brains of, of anyone who hears it. Third, the truth alone will not set you free. This is really important. People think if they just give facts, that will, be, will do it. That's all you have to do. Rather, facts have to be made important, matter. They have to, to have values behind them. You need to know the history of the facts. You need to know the structure of the facts. You need to know the evidence for it. And you need to know the moral importance in order to see the moral consequences. You need to know all of those things, and especially the moral consequences and the moral importance. Fourth, speak from your moral perspective at all times. Correct. Just saying uh, something about one issue is not enough. One issue uh, that is basically a progressive issue is progressive because of its moral background. And it has to be seen that way. The moral basis of each issue is the same, and it has to be repeated over and over in order for people to understand where you're coming from and what it means to be a Democrat, for example. Fifth, understand where conservatives are coming from. In order to argue uh, effectively and deal with conservatives, 
you need to know what they believe. You need to know about uh, strict father morality, then the conservative moral hierarchy, and then to undermine them, you need to frame first. You need to get uh, your values out there, the important, the moral importance of certain facts and certain truths out there uh, before uh, you, uh, you, you know, before other, uh, the conservatives have a chance. Sixth, think strategically across issue areas. Issues are not separate. When Democrats come and write to you, what is your most important issue, and then give us money for that, when they say, what is your most important issue, what they're doing is missing why you are a Democrat at all. The question is that why are your what are your values that make issues important? And it's not just one. It's usually lots and lots of them. So picking an issue and assuming one issue is separate from another issue is a major mistake. Seventh, think about the consequences of proposals. That is really crucial. I, facts don't just sit there. They have consequences. And if they're important, they are morally important. And you need to think through how they're going to work systemically. You have a political system. You have an economic system. You have an ecological system. Any particular fact is going to be functioning in terms of all of those systems. You need to be aware of the systems, and you need to be aware of how the, what the moral consequences are for every systematic uh, place in, you know, where this matters. Eighth, remember that voters vote their identity and their values, which need not coincide with their self-interest. When Thomas Frank wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, uh, he, he didn't quite see what was going on correctly. What was the matter with Kansas was you had a lot of strict, father, strict fathers there who had strict father morality. They were voting against their economic interest. And the reason they were voting against their economic interest was they were voting for their identity. They had a view of right and wrong, which was a conservative view of right and wrong, a strict father view. And what that means is that no matter how poor they were, their view of right and wrong is what defined who they are. Anybody wants to think that they're doing right or trying to do right at all times. And that means your very identity is bound up with your moral system. So if you're a conservative and you have that moral system, it doesn't matter if you're, go if you're rich or poor or if you're voting against your economic interests. What's important is whether you're voting for your identity. What Trump did, maybe taking away health care from people, maybe taking away all kinds of, uh, he may be taxing people more, etc., uh, you know, who are, who are poor, maybe hurting them in all kinds of other ways, but he has established them as the, the true Americans, the ones who fit our president now. Under Obama, people who had strict father morality felt that they were not seen as the true Americans because the country was not being run according to their view of right and wrong. So you have to understand that people vote on the basis of their identity. And this is the big mistake made by the Democrats in the 2016 election who thought they voted purely on demographics and on, uh, you know, uh, on money issues and on material issues. Ninth, unite and cooperate. You cannot win on your own. If you are one of the various kinds of progressive, socioeconomic, identity politics, environmentalists, etc., down the line, you need to, to unite with other people who believe in a politics of care. You need to unite with them because if you don't, you're going to be fighting against them or not voting. What do you say to someone who's not voting? The answer is they are voting. They're always voting whether they vote at the polls or not. But if they don't go to the polls to vote, then they're voting against what they believe because that's taking a vote away from the good guys and giving it to the bad guys. Tenth, be proactive, not reactive. This is crucial. It's easy to react. 
to Trump says something outrageous and you want to get angry and you want to say uh, you're stupid, you're ignorant, uh, you know, this isn't true because of these facts, etc. What you want to do instead and what really works is to say what moral views undermine it, what factual views, what truths undermine what has been said, and then work positively to change the world and to change the country in that direction in a positive way rather than just being critical. Eleventh, speak to the progressive base in order to activate the nurturant model of swing voters. Don't move to the right. Crucial. People who are what do we call biconceptuals, the swing voters, are people who uh, may be conservative on many issues or maybe most issues, but are progressives on some. And that means to be progressives on any issues at all, they have to have a, a, some version in their brain of uh, the idea of the politics of care, even if they have the strict father view for other issues. What you want to strengthen uh, in their brains is the politics of care that they have for these issues. And therefore, you want to speak to them from your moral perspective because you want them to get their mo your moral ideas out there because it will affect those parts of the brain and strengthen it, strengthen your views in their brains because they're already there. You know, you're not manipulating them. You're taking ideas that are already there and strengthening them. And again, all of these points can be found in the all-new Don't Think of an Elephant, which you can hopefully get at your library. Borrow for, from a friend. And George, you don't mind if people buy it, do you? Uh, it'd be okay if people bought it. It's not that expensive. It's one of the cheapest books you'll buy. Uh, you can put it in your pocket, uh, read it uh, in a couple of nights. Uh, not hard to read. And uh, it's, it's out there for a reason in that form. We wanted to make it easily easy to get, Cheap to get and easy to read.